You, for those of you that are here at the church, you may have noticed as you came in that uh, there were some red banners along the railings of the, just on the outside of the church. Orange has become a, a symbol of support for the indigenous community, and we put it there uh, this weekend because I think it's important that our community around our church knows that as a church that we support marginalized people, that we are against injustice, and that we love all people. And that right now, especially the indigenous community throughout Canada is hurting and angry, but we also know that it's through Jesus Christ that healing and reconciliation can happen. And so we want to show our support for the indigenous community in Canada uh, during this time. I would invite you and encourage you to, play, to pray for the indigenous community. Pray also for wisdom for us as a church as we actively seek ways to engage the, that community in meaningful conversation moving forward as well as we want to be part of a solution uh, towards healing and reconciliation. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we are grateful to be able to worship you. We're grateful to be able to celebrate who you are. And Lord, we know that in the midst of our days, our weeks, that there's all kinds of craziness that fills our, our, our minutes. And, and Lord, we are grateful for the space that we have to be able to worship you. And so Lord, now we, we pray that you would speak and that there would be uh, less of me and more of you. In fact, I pray that there would be none of me and all of you. I pray this in your name. Amen. When I was a, a child, I would often go visit my grandparents with my younger brother on the farm. They lived just east of Drumheller. And so we would go there, and it was one of those experiences that I always seemed to enjoy, uh, whether it was the good food that my grandma always cooked or just hanging out with my cousins and just getting up to all kinds of shenanigans on the farm. While we were there, though, we, there was always one tradition that we always did every single time that we were there. We would watch Wizard of Oz. Weird tradition, I know, but it was one of three movies that my grandparents had on VHS, and, uh, and so we popped that baby and took about 14 minutes to rewind it, and then, uh, and then we, for those kids that you don't know what VHS is, ask your parents later, they'll explain it to you. They'll probably be in a museum somewhere. One of the classic scenes, though, of The Wizard of Oz is Dorothy skipping down the yellow brick road with her companions, the, the Tin Man and the Straw Man. During this particular scene, though, Dorothy and her friends realize that their journey down the yellow brick road might be fraught with peril as they went to, meet, went to find the great Wizard of Oz. One of the biggest fears that they faced was lions, tigers, and bears. And as they nervously skipped down the yellow brick road, they would say, lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, lions and tigers and bears, oh my. And, they would, and as, they, as they skipped down the yellow brick road, they were finally approached by a lion who initially presents himself as tough and ferocious predator, exactly what you would anticipate a lion to be. Now under the surface though, we discovered later on in this particular movie that there's something very different about what Dorothy and her friends initially expected, that under the surface, this ferocious lion was actually the cowardly lion, that he was the exact opposite of what he initially seemed. Well, over the next three weeks, we're going to be going down our own yellow brick road and discovering different stories from scripture that initially seem really far-fetched, they seem unusual, they seem bizarre, where we read these events in scripture and on the surface, we might think, oh my, that seems really unbelievable or just downright disturbing. 
or just really upsetting. How is that possibly in the Bible? What, what reason could those stories have for, for making it into God's Word? Things like talking donkeys. Things like cannibalistic mothers. Or insecure prophets. And so in honor of the Wizard of Oz, the title of this series for the next three weeks is Donkeys, Babies, and Bears, Oh My! We will go through a few of the more obscure stories in Scripture and try to explore how these scriptures point us towards the good news of Jesus. Because on the surface, they just seem downright bizarre. So this morning, as we start this series, we will be starting in the book of Numbers, chapter 22. The story of Balaam and his donkey. Now, unlike Shrek and Donkey, this isn't a story of hilarity and, and fairy tale adventure. Instead, the story of Balaam and his donkey is more of a tragic comedy where we read about a heated argument between, don between a donkey and his owner, Balaam. When I say argument, I mean like an actual verbal disagreement. The first thing we need to know about this particular, this particular portion of Scripture is that in terms of the history of Israel, this event is happening as the Israelites are just concluding their 40 years of wandering in the desert. They have, they're now beginning to approach the promised land of Canaan. Rumors have spread throughout the Middle East of this mass of population wandering the desert. The Jews had this growing reputation throughout the region that their God was clearly protecting them. Stories of 40 years before where God destroyed the mighty, powerful Egyptian army and killed the God King Pharaoh. This pillar of fire and smoke that led the Jews around the desert. And even just the sheer size of the population of, 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 the, of the Jews were, that were wandering immediately struck fear in the surrounding nations, but especially in Moab, where they had begun to set up camp. So as this enormous, group of, this enormous population just sets camp on the border of Moab, it immediately starts raising some red flags for the king of Moab. Think of situations like the Cuban Missile Crisis. Or any time we, we hear that the, that the North Koreans have tested a nuclear weapon, immediately the assumption is from the neighboring countries is that it's an act of military aggression. What Balak, the king of Moab, didn't know was that the Jews really had no interest in going into Moab. He just made an assumption. But because of this growing threat, he, as a result, he calls for Balaam. Now, Balaam is the antithesis to Moses. If Moses was a man who sought after God and walked with him, Balaam was the exact opposite. He was someone who, who taught and, and advocated for paganistic teachings. In fact, we read later on that he was actively against God. One of the distinctions with Balaam, though, was that we read in verse 7 was that he was described as a divinator. Basically, it's a paganistic term for witchcraft and satanic spirituality, where Balaam would take an animal and he would dissect it, and he would use its vital organs like the kidneys and the livers, and he would begin to dissect them, trying to interpret what the gods, the paganistic gods, were doing, or what, and, and try to influence what they were, what they were up to. And the reason that the king called for Balaam wasn't because it was military prowess. But it was instead thought that Balaam could control the gods. King Balaam, or sorry, King Balak, understood that what made Israel the most formidable wasn't necessarily its military, 
but it was the divine power that was assisting him. So Balak hired the one person he believed would be able to counteract that divine power that Moses and the Israelites were thought to have had. And so Balaam is introduced in chapter 22, and we discover very quickly that Balaam is not a good dude. Not only does he beat his donkey when she refuses to move, but his insecurities and pride begin to pile up quickly and just kind of leak out everywhere. He just can't help help himself. He's just not a good guy. We see plenty of evidence throughout chapter 22 of, of the rotten character of Balaam. See it in his anger and in his pride and in his insecurities. Verse 23, we read, The donkey turned off the road and went into the field, and Balaam struck the donkey. Verse 25, second time, the donkey saw the angel of the Lord. She pressed herself against the wall, trying to avoid the angel, and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. Verse 27, the donkey saw the angel of the Lord a third time. This time she just laid down under Balaam. So Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with his staff. That's, that's three times now that he's beat his donkey. That's not because the donkey's being disobedient. We read in verse 29, he says, I'm beating you because you made a mockery of me. What's happening here is the author of this chapter is painting a picture of the kind of person Balaam was. Angry, insecure, prideful. They want us to know that Balaam was rotten to the core. And now it's leaking out everywhere. A few, a few summers ago, while we were still, my family and I, we were still living in Lethbridge, and we were enjoying the nice southern Alberta heat, very similar to what we're about to get the next few days. You can call it nice. We decided, though, you know what would be a great reprieve from the heat? is watermelon. And so we went to the grocery store. We picked up three watermelons. Got home. The first one, we were like a pack of locusts on it. It was just, and it was gone. Second day, same thing. We had cracked it open, and we ate it, and we ate it within minutes. Third day, we thought, you know what? We're kind of watermeloned out. Let's, let's take a break. We've already crushed two in two days. Let's just take a, take a breather. And so it sat on the counter, sat on the counter, sat on the counter. And as I said, it was warm. And after about a week or so, we thought, you know, we probably should get rid of that. It's probably not good anymore. Nonetheless, talk is cheap. And it sat on the counter. Until we started to notice that there was fruit flies flying around our kitchen a bit. And then we noticed that there was a little bit of an odor happening. And then we noticed that there was a bit of a puddle underneath the watermelon. And as I went to go retrieve the watermelon, it basically exploded in my hand as, as the pressure from the carbon dioxide in the watermelon had actually fermented it, and the watermelon split in half in my hands. Somehow I had managed to create like watermelon moonshine or something on my counter. The, the smell was horrendous and the evidence of the rot was everywhere. That's kind of like Balaam. The evidence of his rot in his heart is all over this chapter. In fact, Balaam was so rotten that we read in verse 21 that God saw Balaam as an adversary. Now the Hebrew word that we see we use to describe the word adversary is Satan. Balaam is described as Satan. And that should tell us what all we need to know about the kind of person Balaam is. As you expect, 
God is doing, God is actively doing whatever he can to disrupt and oppose anything that this particular adversary is doing. To the point that he sends an angel to kill Balaam before he can fulfill this assignment of cursing Israel. And this is where God uses a rather unorthodox approach to revealing himself. Through a donkey. This donkey, we realize, who we realize quickly, is actually more spiritually aware than his rider. And just like the story of Jonah, we see how God uses an animal to accomplish his purpose of redemption. This time, though, God chooses to speak through the donkey. The donkey actually has a conversation with Balaam and tells Balaam that, in spite of your abuse, that I'm actually trying to protect you from getting killed by this, this angel. That ironically, the, this animal actually has more spiritual insight than Balaam does. And the entire narrative here of Balaam's spiritual life and practices have been flipped around, upside down, in this conversation with his donkey. And God is about to seemingly change the trajectory of Balaam's life. Unfortunately, unfortunately though, for Balaam, he's suffering from massive spiritual tunnel vision. He can't see anything except the thing he wants to see that will support his preconceived ideas. Every once in a while, our family, we will have a barbecue. And if we have steak or pork chops or ribs, whatever it is, and the leftover bones, we, we give them to our dog. One of the things we do is we, we get the kids and we have this collection of bones and we, and we keep the dog inside the house and our kids scatter them and hide them in different spots in our backyard. And, and our dog, Charlie, he's, you can just see him just like so excited to get outside. And as soon as we let him out, he's, he, the hunt is on. And he's, he's scouring. And it's like a little baby. It's basically like a doggy scavenger hunt. But it's, it's fascinating to watch him because as soon as we let him go into the backyard, he immediately starts looking. And he smells and he tracks and he looks and he jumps and he does whatever he can to try and track down exactly what he knows is waiting for him. What's interesting here is that it doesn't matter what happens. When he's in search mode, when Charlie is in search mode, there is nothing that can disrupt him. He is locked in. He has tunnel vision. And he has a singular focus, and it is entirely transfixed on the bones. That's kind of what's happening with Balaam here. He's got the scent of something that will satisfy the hunger of his pride. He's got the scent of something that will continue to feed his insecurities. And as a result, he's lost sight of anything else around him, including this angel that has tried to kill him three times. He's got, Balaam has got so focused on what he wanted that he couldn't see, God, see what God wanted. I don't know about you, but I can certainly relate to Balaam. When, where I can get so singularly focused on the, the one thing that I want, I don't care how I get it as long as I get it. Or sometimes what happens to me as well is I can want things so specific that it doesn't allow me to be gracious towards others because sometimes what other people do don't always fit into my correct standard. In fact, just two days ago, as I was trying to finish up this sermon, it's really, it provided a really good illustration for me. I woke up Friday morning and I was absolutely miserable, just cranky, immediately in a bad mood. I don't know why, I just was. Natalie, she, in the morning, she said, oh, how was your sleep? And under my breath, I said, would have been better if you let me sleep in. I 
said it under my breath because I'm not an idiot. Then I dropped my kids off from school. And there was this motorbiker behind me who was weaving in on the traffic. And, and I was just instantly annoyed with this stupid biker. Just thinking, you know, chill out, man. We're going to get there all at the same time. No need to rush. And then I came to Safeway. Just before I came to the church, I stopped at Safeway over here. And the clerk misheard something I said. You know, something important like my air miles number. And in my head, I was like, what's wrong with you, lady? Get a hearing aid. I said it really clearly. I was so tunnel-visioned with my own stuff that if someone stepped outside of what I wanted them to do or what I expected them to act or be like, it instantly irritated me, and they were instantly a problem, just like Balaam and his donkey. I suspect I'm probably not the only one who gets annoyed with annoyed at the grocery store or annoyed with drivers, annoyed with our spouses. I suspect that when most of us experience tunnel vision, spiritual tunnel vision like Balaam has, it's the result of something happening within our pride, something happening within our insecurities, our need for control. For Balaam, it was very he was, he was, for Balaam, it was clear that he was very concerned about what other people would think of him. Verse 29, he says, You've made a mockery of me. Ultimately, what we discover in this, in this verse is that much of Balaam's motivation lies in his pride. Trying to keep up an appearance, trying to keep up a facade of what the perceptions are that other people have of him. For Balaam, as someone who is thought to be able to control the gods, but can't even control his donkey... This would have immediately ruined any credibility that he would have had with the people around him. His reputation would have been ruined if someone were to possibly see this situation unfolding around him. But that's the issue with pandering to the masses like Balaam was here. Is that you can get pulled in a variety of different directions because you're just trying to please everyone. And, you, and we become mostly worried about what other people think of us rather than more concerned about what God wants of us. How can we be faithful and obedient to God? Ultimately, though, when we have spiritual tunnel vision, we can begin to miss out on what God is doing in us and around us, but wants to do around us and through us. Because sometimes what happens is we can get so transfixed on our own stuff like a dog on a bone, and miss out on what God is doing everywhere else. And essentially when the tunnel vision happens, when we're so preoccupied with ourselves and our agenda and our thing, whatever our thing is, that that thing, that bone, so to speak, becomes our God, rather than the God who is orchestrating everything in us and around us. Fortunately, after my encounter with the for a cashier at, at Safeway, I didn't lash out at her or anything because it was mostly internal. But I realized that there was something going on inside of me that was there was three very negative reactions to very to, to seemingly nothing. And my body, my I could just tell that there was something going on. And so I so I spent the rest of the trip from Safeway to here. Just God, what's what's going on in me today? What's happening in my heart that's causing me to react this way? I think by asking these two questions, God, what's, 
what's going on in me today? What's happening in my heart? I think when we do that, we're able to actually throw off the spiritual blinders that sometimes we are wearing. And we ha- it actually helps us to become more aware that how I was treating people in my heart wasn't okay, nor was it reflecting Jesus in, in, in any way. By asking those two questions, it actually helps us to begin to shift our perspective from, from ourselves and whatever our singular focus is to everything else that God is doing around us. Well, Balaam, as, as he converses with the donkey, and the donkey says, well, why are you beating me? Have I not been obedient to you this whole time? And he says, well, yeah, you have. So at this point, the angel reveals himself. And, and at this point, now we see that, that as, as Balaam begins to have the, as, as Balaam encounters this angel and finally can see him, the spiritual blinders have come off, and we see a response in verse 31 by Balaam. And it says, he bowed all the way to the ground. Balaam finally gets it. And as, the ba- as Balaam and this angel begin to talk, and the angel says, I would have killed you if it hadn't been, if it hadn't been for the donkey. Balaam says well, in verse 34, if this is so important to you, basically, I'll go home then. I'll, I'll, I won't deal with this. Interestingly, though, the angel says, no, keep going with the men that you're here with. But this time when you speak, you can say the words that I give you. None of the stuff that you were going to do before. You don't need to worry about cursing Israel. I said, I'm actually going to give you words, and you're going to bless Israel instead. And so in chapters 23 and 24, Balaam goes, in, goes into Moab. He meets with King Balak. And we read in the next two chapters that the Lord speaks through Balaam. And he blesses Israel over and over and over again. Now, as I said, Balaam's story is, is, isn't just a bizarre encounter with a talking donkey. But it's, more, but it's actually more of a tragic comedy. The comedic part, I think, is that this donkey is more spiritually aware than this divinator was. The tragedy, though, happens after these two chapters. Fortunately, this seems to be just a season of obedience for Balaam. I think I've had enough encounters with people to, to see what real um, conversion experience looks like, real transformation experience looks like, where it's not just like a momentary thing. Unfortunately for Balaam, it's very much a momentary thing. Momentary thing. Because we read later on in Numbers chapter 31 that Balaam was instrumental in pursuing a campaign to corrupt the Israelites. That in spite of knowing the difference between right and wrong, between holiness and unholiness, between knowing the difference between God's kingdom and his kingdom, Balaam instead decides he's going to put the, blind, the, the blinders back on and he chooses himself. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, the author says, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. See, I think often, I think what we see in Balaam here is he's got his eyes fixed on himself. He's got his eyes fixed on the money that Balak has promised him to do this, do this job. Here we read that 
in this passage that says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Whenever we read Balaam's name beyond chapters 22, 23, and 24, it comes up at different times throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Last time it's mentioned in, in Revelation. We read that, that Balaam was detestable to the Lord in spite of this particular event. That Balaam is actually synonymous with false doctrines and spiritual corruption. That he remained an adversary to the Lord. What a tragedy. That he had this incredible encounter with the Lord and still rejected him. The tragedy here is that Balaam had a chance to willingly be used by God to bless Israel. But instead, he did it for a season, but then ultimately rejected it. And his change was simply on the surface rather than in the heart. He's very much like the lion who presented one thing but was really something else entirely. He was just too entangled with the sin in his own life. Where Balaam had this moment of spiritual clarity, but unfortunately it seemed as though he went back to this spiritual tunnel vision and old habits instead. So this morning, as we consider the implications of how this tragic comedy unfolds in our own lives, we, ask, we have to ask the question, what are the implications of it for us? What does it mean? I want to offer two ways that we can ensure that we, that we don't get tunnel vision like Balaam. Because I think what we see here is that, that Balaam in no way is the hero in the, of the story. Two ways. Jesus teaches in Matthew 22, two greatest, two greatest commandments. Love God ways that we can stop seeing the world around us through tunnel vision, where we're only focused on our situations and our circumstances, is by looking out for the interests of others. Where we realize the reality that the greatest purpose that God has given us is to look beyond ourselves and to be a part of other people's lives where we are available to be used by God in small, simple ways. Maybe it's as simple as just learning your neighbor's name, just reducing one of the, one of the barriers to, just, to, to getting to know a neighbor. Just learn their names. And just admittedly, we, there's a neighbor behind us, her name's Sandra. And for some of you, you may be thinking, you know, I've been living at my house for 5 or 10, 20 years, and I can't remember their name. I had this, ha this happen with our neighbor a few months ago, and she's introduced herself probably half a dozen times to me, and I could not remember it for the life of me. And I finally just admitted it to her. I said, listen, I need to apologize. I can't remember your name. Would you forgive me and tell me your name? Sometimes that's all it takes if you can't remember your neighbor's name. And I know sometimes it seems silly, but that's just a really practical thing. Maybe it's also just looking for small gestures to let your neighbors know that you're interested, that you're interested in what's happening in their lives. I, I shared this story a few weeks ago with a small group that, that, that I'm in uh, on Monday nights, and, and we were just talking about ways that we can have, show that Christ is in us. A few weeks ago, I was mowing my lawn, and I noticed in our back alley that the weeds were you know, getting to be jungle-like, and, uh, and so... I got my wee whacker and, and knocked them down. It took about five minutes to do the job. But I, but I noticed that Sandra, new neighbor that I remember, remembered her name, I noticed that Sandra, the, the widow behind us, she's about 65 or so, and, 
that her weeds were kind of in the same situation. Now, Sandra is meticulous with her garden. So it was unusual to me that she, that she hadn't dealt with this back alley situation. And it was one of those moments where I thought, you know, I could just close the garage door and just go inside. I, just thought, I could have just said, you know, she can just do it herself. Or I could have said, I'm too tired. I'm, you know, I got things to do. I could have said, if it's important to her, she'll take care of it. And I could have justified it in any number of ways. But instead, taking his spiritual blinders off, stop looking tunnel vision, felt like this was a really simple way to be available to Jesus and serve in this small but practical way. So I took the 10 minutes and I knocked her weeds down and it was done. Now, did she come out and throw herself at me and tell me about Jesus? Did she come and repent and, and express her, confess her faith, unwavering faith in Jesus? No, she didn't. Did she rush out at all? No. Has she since? Still no. But here's the thing. I didn't do it for her. I did it for myself. I did it because we need to be available. And if I can't be available for the small things, then I certainly won't be available to God for the big things. Loving others doesn't have to be these grand gestures that are sensationalized. But instead, what if loving others was just small expressions of care and kindness that allow the people around us just to get a fragrance of Jesus through the way that you live your life? I don't know about you, but I take a great deal of comfort knowing that if God can use a stubborn, stinky animal like a donkey, then he can probably use me as well. But we have to be available, don't we? I find comfort knowing that the donkey, the, the animal with the reputation for being the most stubborn, was available to be used by God. And as I read this story, I find a talky, talking donkey amazing. But what I find even more amazing is that it was the Lord who spoke through the donkey. That, the, that God used this animal in, in amazing ways. Don't know how many times you've had these thoughts before where you've thought, how can God use a sinner like me? What hope is there in someone like me to be used for God's purposes? I don't have anything to offer. I'm too old. I'm too young. I'm too messed up. I'm too sinful. I'm too broken. I'm too whatever. If God can use a donkey, He can certainly use you. Secondly, we love God. I want to make the worship team this morning. The fact that the angel of the Lord tried three different times to kill Balaam is important. God was clearly trying to stop Balaam. But the donkey in this story was the only one who was attentive to the Spirit of God at work. In spite of Balaam's insistence to stay in the path, the donkey instead was actively aware of God's presence around them. When you and I actually begin to focus on what God wants rather than what we want, 
It helps us to see that there's a much larger narrative at work beyond what's happening directly around us or directly in front of us. As we intentionally choose to love God and pull, pull off the spiritual blinders in front of us, it helps, us to strength, it helps strengthen us and sustain us, especially when things don't seem to be going according to the way that we want them to be. So maybe today, maybe today our prayer could be to ask God to take the spiritual blinders off of our eyes, to throw off the things that maybe have been hindering our faith, like the author of Hebrews talks about, so that we can make our lives all about Jesus, who wants to perfect our faith. Maybe today our prayer could be to ask God to help us to be available to Him, to make the extra effort so that we can be attentive to the Holy Spirit and, and intentionally love others in our lives. The reality here is that Balaam's change was temporary. That eternal change happens when we fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you can, if you can use a donkey, you can use me. You can use us. That you are not restricted by the, the vessel in many ways. But Lord, we desire to, to walk with you, not against you. Lord, we pray that, that, our, that you would work in us and through us, not in spite of us, but through us. Lord, we think of many people that we know who have been like Balaam, who have heard the truth of Scripture, who have encountered you and still rejected you. Lord, we know that there's still hope for them to turn towards you now. And so, Lord, we pray that they would. God, if you can use us to help, to, to point them towards you, God, we pray that you would help us, that you 